Hi everyone, it's Laura Huey and you are joining me for Sociology 9021 Qualitative uh, Research Methods. This of course is an advanced seminar for graduate students. Today's totally exciting, sexy, scintillating topic was right up there with the latest episode of Real Housewives of uh, New Jersey. This is called Coding Qualitative Data. And I am, of course, am joined by my uh, inestimable co-hosts, Chewbacca and Lucy. Lucy is doing what Lucy should be doing, which is sleeping. And uh, Chewie is circling, circling me uh, like a shark, probably looking for T-R-E-A-T-S's. He hasn't figured out how to spell that yet, but wait for it. It's coming. Chewie. Do you want to come and come and be on be on? I was gonna say television, but I guess this isn't TV. Come on, Chewie. I don't know what he's doing, but it's it scares me. All right. So and yes, I'm on day 87 of my current H1N1 flu, and day eight of my COVID captivity. So um, I I have I, I have a feeling that um, this is gonna be a very long spring. Let's get started. When we talk about coding, uh, I've, I've, used, I've talked at the very, very first class that we did on, on qualitative methods, I talked about deductive versus inductive approaches to thinking through your research project. Guess what? That, those two concepts, they reappear right now when it comes to coding. We have two general approaches. Deductive is, uh, another way of thinking about deductive is concept-driven coding. You start with a theory or some basic theoretically informed ideas or concepts that you explore through your data. So if your data, and I'm thinking here of, of one of my students, Elena, is interested in, in basic um, ba levels of basic income for, for Ontarians, Given her interest in that topic, she's, I, I don't I, I say she's interested in using a, th a theoretical framework in which she, she explores theories of neoliberal governance. So she would start from that theoretical perspective and that framework or that perspective would shape how she would go about coding her data. So she'd be looking for codes that relate to aspects of neoliberalism and neoliberal discourse as it relates to uh, basic income. I am not an expert on this. That was a really terrible uh, analogy for me, or I should say, hang on a sec, my throat is killing me. I need to slurp some caffeine. There we go, almost choked on it. That's all you need is for me to keel over in the midst of this. So I used uh, Elena's work as an example. Uh, it's not my particular area of, 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 of um, research. If I used a crime-related area of research, for example, I might, uh, I might be interested in, uh, I might be using routine activities theory, which is a theory about how uh, offenders work within particular spaces, how they target, make, uh, target and select um, the crimes that they're going to commit and the objects of their criminal behavior in the spaces in which they're going to operate. And, uh, and if I was doing interviews with, for example, 
individuals that do burglaries or break and enters, I might, uh, using that theory, um, I would be asking them questions related to how I conceptualize their work in light of that theory. And then I would subsequently code the data again, using ideas and concepts, well, codes that relate to that theory. I probably killed that topic of any interest at all for anyone ever, but I'm sorry, we'll move along. Then the second general approach is data-driven or grounded approaches. And this is a form of inductive work. And quite frankly, this is typically the bulk of the work that I do. You start, this is perfect for exploratory research where you start with no particular theoretical approach or preconceived ideas about what you're gonna find. You just sort of let the ideas emerge from the data. Give you an example, I did research with, uh, I was interested in homeless women who've been victimized, who've been criminally victimized. How, what is, how do they, um, do they access services? So we had some very basic questions about if you've been victimized, have you accessed uh, the police? Have you accessed the medical system? Have you accessed counseling services? And as a result of and just very basic questions and a very basic coding structure. And from that, we started to get some interesting results around women's use of uh, psychological counseling. In fact, the fact that there was no psychological counseling, oftentimes women who've been victimized hadn't accessed services directly that would relate to um, helping them resolve with their trauma other than medical services where oftentimes they were given anti-anxiety meds, uh, they were given antidepressants and so on. And that became a whole book. But really that whole book started because we just asked some general questions about, you know, about victimization and services that you've used to address that victimization. Here's an example. This is from a study done by Rhodes on uh, individuals who've been diagnosed with delusional disorder. The purpose of this study was to develop a scheme for coding the different types of statements they made about themselves and the world that they, they, they live in. And so, um, this first example here is a, this is of course now the cat, the dogs are quiet. So now the cats are acting like idiots. Perfect. Um, anybody wants some cats and dogs call me. So what the roads had done is summarized the statements that this, that these individuals had made and, and then coded those summaries. Now I have to be honest, uh, this is great for illustrating general codes that you might use, I myself would not summarize people's statements and then code those summaries. I would of course code the interview transcripts themselves. But again, in terms of developing an article to show people what she had done, I guess this makes sense or I wouldn't be showing it to you. But you know, again, we would work from the original transcripts. So in this particular case, uh, Example number one, P18 is the participant. There goes the cat. Why the cat is running around demented, like, I have no idea. The dogs are sleeping and that, this is not going to last for long. Okay. Thanks, Louie. Um, so, participant 18 believes that there's a criminal gang who wish to kill him. 
because he has reported them to the police for some unspecified uh, reason. Many suspicious things he perceives as happening. Um, someone calling out his nickname, strange looks from people, noises in buildings, suspicious lights. And so how Rose is, as the general codes that uh, Rose, Rose has given this summary are violence, uh, group, punishment, and reference to self. Here's the thing. The codes have to make sense to you. And those codes will be things that you have developed intuitively from what people have said and ideally in light of uh, this particular work was not done it was not theoretically driven this was this was done through inductive research i have no idea you know this code of group i i suppose that rose is thinking well you know uh I have no idea what the hell Rhodes is thinking, but I, in relation to this idea of a criminal gang, this makes sense. This code makes sense. Though why this would be useful in relation to thinking, I suppose, individuals who are stalking or preying on... In, on Now Chewy started up. All right, hang on. I need coffee. Anyway, I have no idea. Let's just leave it at that. I have no idea. The bottom line, though, is that the codes have to make sense to the coder. And that coder has to subsequently be able to take that set of the, those codes and the results of the coding and make it make some sort of a coherent sense for the person that will eventually read whatever it is that they're writing. All right. This is what I do. I use something called thematic analysis, not all exclusively, but a lot. And this is work from two psychologists called Braun and Clark. It's a method of analyzing data that entails identifying, analyzing, and reporting themes within data. Themes are just, you know, patterns within data that hold thematically. I know that probably didn't make much more sense either. Hang on, more coffee. Honestly, kids, the flu is literally eating my brain. But here's the thing. Minimally, it's a way of organizing and describing your data in rich detail. But it can go further than this and help you in terms of interpreting various aspects of the research. The thing I like about thematic analysis is you can use it both inductively and deductively. You can code for themes based on the theoretical framework you're using, or you can code thematically just as I like to do just on an exploratory reading to see what types of themes emerge in the work that you do. And again, going back to my previous example of the homeless women who've been victimized, one of the themes that came up was a lack of, of psychological support for their victimization and uh, a lot of references to medical treatment instead. And not medical treatment, medical treatment in the sense of using psychiatric drugs as a way of dealing with trauma. So here's an example of thematic analysis. You've got some qualitative data that you, um, you can come up with some initial codes for that what you realize is these codes, they, they, they coalesce around themes. 
and it's these themes that that essentially you explore in your in your analysis and in the subsequent writing to give you some examples some steps that might be involved in doing thematic analysis one sitting down and doing a cold reading of the data and just jotting down themes that emerge as you as you read that you can then go back and code for it's because again the thing i actually don't like about this is there needs to be a circle that comes back because it is an iterative process and it's not just themes we're also going to talk about sub themes as well let's go to next Taking the themes you've written and then tying them into related sub-themes. For example, if the theme is about being a student, a sub-theme might be being a good student. Oh, I, I was, I've been a very, I was, you know, I was really, uh, I, I, got on, I got all my work done this week. I got all my, my reading done. I'm really proud of, you know, being on top of that, considering all the stress I'm under. Well, the theme of being a student is obviously reflective in that, and as is a sub-theme, being a good student. There might be another sub-theme that emerges, being a bad student. Oh, I feel, I f and I'm getting some emails about this. With COVID-19, people are having to do all sorts of things. Like, for example, go and um, take care of uh, parents, making sure that you know parents are getting access to food and all that stuff. That's important, and for, but for some students, they would frame that, they might frame that as, oh, you know, I'm really sorry, I, didn't, I haven't got my assignment done because I'm doing this, I feel really bad, but I promise I'm gonna get on this. Which, by the way, sometimes being a bad student is actually being a good human being, just saying. Maybe we should have another sub-theme, good human being. Uh, and then, okay, student, well, you know, I'm really struggling, trying to get everything done, sometimes I'm successful, sometimes I'm not, well, that's, fits this sub-theme, okay, student. Taking specific, number three, taking specific words, phrases, or other units of meaning that communicate meaning to someone else, and that might also include silences, pauses, and backtracking in an interview uh, or in a focus group when you're going through the transcript. Sometimes people stop and they're silent or pausing, and that's actually can be just as meaningful as what they actually said because they're, they're, they're pausing because they don't want to tell you something or they're finding it very difficult to continue the discussion that they're having. And sometimes that, can, and that will relate to themes and sub-themes that you've identified. For example, and I'm using education as an example, a student says, I got an A in chemistry, I rock. Well, an A in this context ties into this theme of someone seeing themselves as a good student. I rock is, is a, you know, I think that's pretty indicative of uh, some self-regard for being a good student. An A, of course, is a grade, and you could code for grades. And again, tie this all in thematically. Once you've done an initial, uh, initial we call it an open coding, once you've done that initial open coding and you've started to identify some themes, this is why I say it's an iterative process, you can go back and do a much more focused coding in which you take one or more of your codes, such as grade, and you look for examples in your data to see how they relate to themes and sub-themes that you've, that you've identified. And doing this can also allow you to identify new themes and sub-themes that you didn't previously pick up. Again, it's an iterative process. It is not, I know all the quantitative people are probably 
I'm not, I don't do quantitative coding, kids. This is, this is not in my pay grade. But I'm imagining it may possibly be, in some respects, a little bit easier than what we're talking about, especially if you're working, for example, with survey data, where you've got demogra demographic factors, right? Age. Um, you're not thinking about this thematically. So I get that this might seem very convoluted for some of you, and I get that. But here's the thing. It is like any new skill set that you that you develop. Uh, the the more you do it, the better you get, and that includes coding. Here's an, um, some examples from a study of diaries that were kept by staff who work with people that were receiving patient psychiatric treatment. Based on the diaries that the staff members kept, uh, this researcher identified four th major themes. They were good care, order and clarity, loyalty, and inadequacy. And from those four major themes, a number of sub-themes were identified. So I'm just, I'm not obviously gonna read this entire slide to you, uh, but here's an example. The theme of inadequacy included statements relating to frustration at being unable to help or relate to patients. And here's another example, a uh, way of thinking about how this work was done from this um, Petri study. Fury study, Petri Fury, the hell was this person's name? Oh, well, there we go. Peltro Puri. I was close from the Peltro Puri study. So here's just a table. And I think if you're doing this kind of research, this is a fantastic way, especially if you love to quantify things, this is a fantastic way in which you can you can quantify uh, the frequency with which these themes and sub-themes emerged in your data. And a colleague of mine in uh, the University of Alabama, Nellie Todak, uh, recommends this to her. She does this. She recommends this to other qualitative researchers and to her students as well, which is, I, you know, if you're writing up your results from doing this type of work, why don't you do a nice table that clearly lays out your major themes, lays out the major sub-themes, because so you, you might have more than, than you actually talk about in, in the context of your paper, and then identify the number of statements that reflect these. And why this is good practice is not only does this help us understand the work methodologically, but one of the big issues with I see with writing a, qual a qualitative research is a lot of times people use what I call fuzzy words or, or um, kind of like, um, I forget what the, I would, see this is how, well, hang on, I need more coffee. Lame ass words. These are lame ass words that people use like many, some, in some cases, in many cases, in a few cases. Well, what the hell does that mean? What does many mean when, in the context of, of 52 interviews? In the context of 52 interviews, is many 30? Is it 40? Is it 30? Is it 25? I have no way of knowing. So when you say that many people in the research talked about that staff should demonstrate commitment and concern, what the hell does many mean? Well, here we have this nice little chart that says it appeared in 51 statements in this case, this is statements to do with statements that were made in the uh, diaries. But what if this was interviews? Then we'd know that in 51 out of 52 interviews, this emerged. 
That would be an important finding. Now, this is for Audra because she sent me an, she sent me an email uh, with a comment about grounded theory. So I have to now go through grounded theory and make sure that everybody understands what the hell we're talking about here. And the an the short answer to this is you. Uh, it's not clear to me really that many people actually understand grounded theory anyway, and that there's very little clarity because here's the deal. Glazer and Strauss wrote about grounded theory in 1967, and then subsequently they, they split and they both talked about it, and then other people talked about it, and then it gets used and misused and abused in all sorts of different ways in all sorts of subsequent publications, and um, leading me to question whether or not we actually have one set of concrete, uh, one concrete definition of grounded theory. I have done my best here to give you the sort of cold, well, I guess the Huey's notes version of what constitutes grounded theory, keeping in mind that there are 45 million other different iterations of this out there. As close to the original grounded theory from 1967 as possible, what we're talking about is a inductive method in which you do not actually go in with any preconceived theory. Instead, you let your data speak to you and tell and basically themes or, or codes emerge that start to suggest a theoretical framework or theoretical pattern. But that comes from the data that is not superimposed on by you. So what happens in a grounded theory approach is that data collection and analysis occur simultaneously. Let's go back to my example of the women in that we studied in Detroit and Chicago, and we asked them questions about, about um, victimization and services. Again, we had no idea what we were going to find, and I had never worked in the U.S., I'd certainly never worked in those two states before. I had no idea if the systems would be similar or dissimilar from Canada or the UK where I had worked. I had no clue. So we had these general basic questions. And what happened is every after we had, uh, I worked with a team and in that shelter, before we even left the shelter, we would get together and do a debrief and we would start to talk about interesting insights that emerged from our interviews and we'd be taking we'd be taking notes those notes helped by the way form the helped us with the coding that subsequently took place it also helped us with question development because if something emerged that we hadn't thought of then we would make a collective decision to add a question uh to to our next set of interviews about that so this is a sort of a grounded theory approach the categories and analytic codes developed from data, that is exactly what I just said. There's no pre previously pre-existing conceptualizations are not used. This is known as theoretical sensitivity. We're being sensitive to our data. We are not being, we're not sort of pre, we're not slamming our data with our pre-existing ideas and judgments. Theoretical sampling is used to refine categories. So essentially what we're doing is we, uh, like I just said, when we find an interesting observation or insight, we would then develop, uh, we'd add that to our question and we'd, then we'd see whether or not that 
line of questioning was worth continuing based on the, the feedback that we got in the interviews. That would help us to refine our categories and think through how we were doing our research. Um, abstract categories are constructed inductively. Again, we're not like our coding, there were like, we didn't take a Marxist perspective, so we were not talking about Marxist concepts. Uh, social processes are discovered in the data. For example, we, as I, I said, we, we got all sorts of new insights into the inability of women to access uh, resources. In fact, we started to learn that most of the resources that they were able to access were either through shelters or through social, uh, social service providers. They didn't have, like, uh, like I called my doctor today to try to get an appointment. Uh, well, actually, a phone appointment because nobody is crazy enough to go into a doctor's office today unless you're really, really sick. And I'm not there yet, kids. Um, but these women did not have their own doctor. They were relying on free clinics, which is uh, an interesting statement about how, uh, how medicine works in the, in the U.S., especially if you happen to not have a medical insurance and you happen to be uh, homeless. Analytical memos are used between the coding and the writing. So essentially as the coding, this is not dissimilar from what we were doing when we were doing, taking notes during the debriefing sessions. Same thing it can occur through the coding where you're taking notes on interesting codes that potentially or ideas or themes that potentially emerge that you want to explore. And then you, you know, you take memos about that so you can go back again. It's an iterative process where you're going back and as things you do an initial open coding, then you can go back for more focused coding efforts later on. And then, of course, the categories are integrated into a theoretical framework. I've talked about open versus focused coding. Initially, that's what you do. It's an open, you're just trying to orient some future analysis by just seeing what, what emerges. And then you use the result of that open coding to start to, to start to develop a theoretical framework that you'll test using the data. Then you return to the data informed by this new free framework and recode it using a more focused approach. And you might do that many times over. Sometimes you'll do that because you're, you know, you're focused on a particular topic, you know, something emerges you're really interested in, a subject area you want to explore. For example, like it, as in my case, uh, I was interested in um, the lack of uh, psychological services for, for victimized women and what that says about their inability sometimes to, uh, to develop, to become, uh, to get over trauma and to become more resilient without social support. I wrote an entire book about that. So clearly I would have been focused on, on thinking about that in my data. Later on in other, another work that I did because I was able to take memos about other interesting ideas, I could then return to those other interesting ideas and recode that data in light of them. This is why I love qualitative research. We can many, many kicks at the can. Here's an example of, of a study that was done on Japanese posters to a suicide website and, and which this person uh, demonstrated how they did their coding and in this particular case, again, we're looking for words 
or phrases or other uh, units of meaning that will tell us something about, in this case, these individuals' thought processes. And this person, um, this researcher has coded these particular statements as an ambivalent suicide wish. So this is not an active suicide wish. It's a, I'm thinking about this, but I'm not going to act on it. Uh, or I'm not, I'm not talking about it as something that I, I'm about to do. Um, then there's some examples of passive suicide wish, and there's some examples of group suicide wish. This is a little morbid for this chick here with the flu, so we're just going to keep it going. And of course, this is the part that I wanted you to see. This is how the researcher charted their codes to construct an overall sort of picture of how these posters present on this website in terms of, of their um, suicidal thoughts. This is one of the things that I personally, I'm not gonna lie, I am terrible. I do not see data visually. Uh, I see data in terms of um, words and logic within words. So this is not for me. However, some people see data visually and some people prefer to see it when we're talking about other people's work. It can be very helpful in terms of, again, going back to what I'm saying about uh, Natalie's love of charting themes, this helps, this form of charting helps you see, for example, how often something was uh, reflected in the statements that were analyzed, but also how these, how these different themes or collections of statements or codes uh, interrelate to each other. So, and because here's the thing, when you're studying social processes, oftentimes things interrelate. I, again, I feel that there are probably some quantitative people here who are like, oh my God, this is way too complicated. Can we just go back? But guess what? The thing is, the stuff you do is way too complicated too, but you're just used to it. So you just think about it. Um, actually, you know what? This form of data visualization is actually pretty popular in uh, quantitative work too. So if, hey, if data visualization floats your boat, I think you should go for it. Who knows, maybe one of these days I might actually do this. I think it's a fantastic way of, like I said, of just showing how themes interrelate. I know I'm a hypocrite. I think it's fantastic, but let's face it, I'm probably never gonna do it. A third way of thinking about coding your data is through something called narrative analysis. Oftentimes, uh, when people are studying uh, certain types of social processes, you discover that those social processes sort of mirror stories. Human beings are functionally, functionally, we're functionally, I'm not very functional. Hang on, I need coffee. Hmm. Human beings are inherently, is the word I wanted, we're inherently storytellers. Some of us are better at it than others. Uh, but human beings communicate and have done since we all sat around um, fires together, uh, you know, poking at the fire and uh, eating meat and berries that we harvested and all that stuff. I clearly uh, wasn't paying attention in anthropology. 
But um, back in our hunter-gatherer days, human beings have, since then, we have been storytellers. And narrative analysis is a technique that, in which the researcher interprets the stories participants tell within the interviews or focus groups. But also, by the way, I've said that, but I also think that there's other ways in which stories can emerge too. For example, if you're doing content analysis in blogs and other forms of writing, people tell stories. And these elements include how the story is structured, what functions the story serves, and the substance of the story, and how the story is actually performed. A great example is um, Clifford Shearing and Richard Erickson's work in policing. This is one of the most brilliant insights into policing I've ever heard, and nobody talks about this research. But basically, what we know about policing, police culture is, it is a storytelling culture. A lot of police knowledge is passed on to other police officers through storytelling. And there's a method for communicating wisdom or lessons to, to younger people in the culture. And the term that Shearing and Erickson use is recipe rules. Just like a recipe where you, you step one, you do this, step two, you do that, step three, you do that. These with these lessons follow a recipe. So if you are in, I'll give you an example. If you're in this situation, this is what you do. I was once told a story by a longtime police officer in, uh, in a Skid Row district about how you take down a drug dealer in this neighborhood. And basically what I was told, and this is, you know, this is an old time story. Basically what I was told is if, you, you set up on the drug dealer, you watch the drug dealer for a particular period of time. When you've got enough to go on, then what you do is you rush the dealer from behind and you take him down to the pavement as hard as possible. And not to hurt the drug dealer, but to take them down so that you take them down quick, I said as hard as possible, as quickly as possible. God, that was, that was a Freudian slip. Um, why? Because if the drug dealer sees you, they're going to run. They're going to swallow the drugs. They're going to throw the drugs away. They're going to fight you. And so you rush them from behind so they don't see you coming and you take them down fast, not hard, fast, so that they don't have an opportunity to do any of those things. That is how you arrest a drug dealer. Step one, step two, etc. I'm going to give you another example where you can see narrative analysis coming in handy. A long, long time ago, when I was a little, uh, when I was a little student at Simon Fraser, back in the day when we did our honors at Simon Fraser, it was a extra fifth year of study, and in that fifth year, you had to produce a thesis that you defended. Can you imagine? I would love to implement this at Western. I will be, I will be, I will be basically chased out of town. However, the thing about doing this work is it gave me an opportunity before I did my master's to know how to actually execute a piece of research. And the research that I did was content analysis. I was interested in women who did, who knowingly become involved in romantic relationships with men who have been convicted of serious violent offenses. These are gang murders, 
These are serial killers. These are people who have um, violently uh, sexually assaulted and murdered women. And these are women, the women I'm interested in get involved with these guys and go on to marry them or certainly engage in a long-term romantic relationship with them. What I, I, since I didn't have access to the women, what I did have access to were their stories because a number of these women actually have blogs and websites in which they posted their stories. And so narrative analysis was the perfect way of analyzing those stories and understanding them through a literary framework. What I discovered was that these stories mimicked the arc and the structure and the key elements of romance novels. How the women talked about these, this, and I know I have not, trust me, I have not read a romance novel since I did this work. Like the thought of it just makes me nauseated, but work with me on this. In the old days of the Harlequin romance, there were a number of novels in which, uh, and maybe there still are today, the, 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 hero, the hero, and I'm doing scare quotes around hero, was like a pirate or a bandit or you know some other bad guy and this and he meets this beautiful woman who's you know he they have this kind of antagonistic relationship but then you know the pirate who has captured her and is going to use her as a slave he falls in love with her and she t and then she ends up through love taming him and turning this bad boy into a bad boy to everybody else but into her own loving captive I'm like gagging okay we can't go much further with this but this is a romance archetype that has been around for a long long time the guy the bad boy who is tamed by the good woman I is a dangerous horrible archetype because it leads to things like, apparently, women romanticizing their relationships with serial killers. And the ways in which the women wrote about their experiences, as I said, had a lot of those elements in there. And it also showed how they were able to justify relationships in which ultimately they were really getting very, very little out of this deal. And in fact, in one of the cases I studied, the, the guy was released and subsequently murdered her. Just, yeah. People, and it was funny, I remember going to a party where I was describing my research and being attacked by a feminist criminologist for like, how could you, this, that never happens and you know, you're just sensationalizing and blah, blah, blah. Well, okay, first of all, shut up. And second of all, not only do these types of things happen, but at the time, um, I was aware of a case where, and this is actually not as unusual as it should be, in which a uh, parole officer was involved with, with a guy like this and ended up losing her job over it. Okay, moving along. Another way to visualize data that I also don't use, but I feel I should talk about, is content clouds. I actually think this is kind of cool. Um, and could be useful in terms of, of uh, talking about the relative importance of certain key concepts. 
uh, or words within things that you're studying. So for example, if you're looking at uh, speeches or interviews or policy documents or Twitter discussions, you can use Content Clouds and their software to, that does this for you um, to show their relative importance to the speaker or to the writers or in relation to themes, concepts, and so on. Let me give you an example. Dun, dun, dun. I stole these. I forget where I stole these from. The original sources, though, were the White House and the USA Today. So I'm going to go with that. So these are statements that were made by President Obama. One is from his 2011 State of the Union speech. And here's one from the 2014 State of the Union speech. And the darker, bigger words are words that appear most frequently within the context of that speech. So you can see what he emphasized most strongly within the speech. And again, it's just a way of sort of um, visualizing your data. I think actually, you know what? I'm not gonna do this. However, if Lorna is out there listening, Lorna, my grad student who's doing some qualitative research, Lorna, we should, we, meaning you, should probably do this. I think this would be actually kind of cool. Uh, we could do this with interviews. Lauren is collecting interviews with um, police officers who work in the field of missing persons, so in search and rescue, investigation, frontline response, and so on. So maybe we could take those interviews and we could do some we could do some word clouds to show what concepts appear most frequently. I have no idea why anybody would be interested in this, but it just looks very cool. Uh, there, I'm being honest with you guys. Now let's talk about old school versus new school coding. This we're gonna blitz through pretty quick, quickly. This is Laura. This is not literally Laura, but this is kinda Laura. I have, of course, would have way better jewelry. I would not have man hands, and I would have my nails done. But otherwise, this is me. And this is Lorna and basically any other graduate student uh, because you, I'm low tech and you guys are all much more high tech. Um, so this is Envivo, I believe. Yep, this is Envivo. Old school, new school. What is old school? Manual coding. I do a line-by-line -line focused reading of interview transcripts or other data. And then I, and I literally, literally, you, this, Back in the day, this is pretty high tech. These, this is involves highlighters. I remember uh, all sorts of different things, including sticky notes, different colored sticky notes have been used. Um, cut and paste has been used, all sorts of different things. But it is literally reading and then parsing out the different units of meaning and then starting to group them on paper or on the screen. So that might also be actually looking at a transcript on the screen and using, if you want to be very digital and high tech, using the color coding highlighter on your Word document. That is what I do, kids, every single time for over 20 years. This is what you do. And as you see here, you are out of luck. I don't use it. If you want to know more about Envivo, there are tons and tons of different resources available to you. I am not going to learn Envivo and pretend 
or pretend that I use it so I can fake my way through this discussion. I will, you can email me, I will even Google some YouTube resources for you, or this is terrible, I'm about to do it. You could email Lorna <laughs> and uh, ask for some tips, but don't tell her I told, I actually put this down in this discussion. I'll deny it. Okay, and on that note, Dun 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 break time <laughs>